Welcome, everyone, to another episode of HR and Payroll 2.0. As always, I'm Pete Tiliakis, and I'm joined by uh, the legendary Julie Fernandez. Welcome, Julie. Hey, Pete. How are you? Good to hear you. Good, good. How's it going? Great. What's that? Great. Yeah. I'm in the warm, away from my usual uh, frigid Detroit temperatures. Good. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, Yeah, I understand you're in Florida, right? You've been doing a little bit of uh, event going this week, if, if I understand correctly. That's absolutely right. So I don't know if our listeners know about um, some of the bigger HR conferences, but the one that I was at just earlier this week is called NARES, which stands for oh, okay. the North America Exec- HR Executive Summit. Nice. Um, nice. So, uh, I've not it, been there. A, no. Um, it's it's an interesting conference. They, um, they tend to have peer speakers, and um, they usually draw 500 to 600 or so HR leaders. So they yeah. specifically target folks that have, um, you know, um, some sort of responsibility, um, usually some, some budget, some, a lot of business partners are there. Um, and then uh, higher level titles, director and above kind of um, peers that you can network with over the course of two days, two very, very busy days. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And, and that was in Orlando, right? That was in Orlando at the Champions Gate. And some of the, um, a lot of people ask me, you know, kind of who, who attends um, and who speaks. And so you have some great speakers coming from, you know, all, all of the folks that people want to hear from. McDonald's was there, um, you know, Pfizer, P&G, um, J&J is there, um, Jazz Pharmaceuticals spoke. So you get, um, you know, some uh, attractive kind of People along an experienced journey, and it's peers speaking more than, you know, providers. People don't really want to hear providers speak. They want to hear from other HR practitioners, right? And yeah, groups. yeah. Um, so that's a big draw. And they just, you know, have a couple of jam-packed days. About half of the attendees are from what I would call, you know, mid to large size organizations. And the other half are generally from, you know, smaller, maybe, you know, 2,000 and below um, yeah. sized organizations. So, you know, no matter what your size is, you're, you're bound to find yourself at table after table of, of peers that are either bigger than you or right in your same mix. So yeah, um, it sounds like conference. it. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. It's nice. I mean, I, I think that the, you know, sometimes these conferences get a little bit, um, you know, I think people think that they're just sort of, you know, maybe uh, a boondoggle, right? In, in, in some some leaders, but I, I actually think there's so much value in be in that in that networking part of it, yeah. right? It's yeah. uh, just that trade of information. I know, I know, I personally, as an analyst and just as a you know as a professional, I always get so much out of the conversations. Um, you know, just learning about things that I may not be thinking about, and especially when you're a practitioner and you know you're going through what you think is the you know world ending or world changing challenges, and you think you're the only one. Uh, it's very refreshing to be in, in and amongst peers that you can bounce these um, moments off of and situations and understand how others are, are, are solving it in, in your industry or in your set of challenges or, or even just outside and maybe give you some perspective. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to see that we're getting back to events and people are attending. And, um, yeah, this is one I, I'm not familiar with, but maybe maybe someday we'll, uh, <laughs> I'll get to check it out. So very good. That's right. If anyone's ever good looking to, for, uh, for information on what sort of conferences there are for what types of, uh, for what types of topics, I think either one of us would be a pretty good source. Um, yeah. There's some of the, <laughs> we've been to a few, the, we've been to a yeah, few. Exactly. Uh, good, good. So let's talk about maybe some market updates. Is that cool? Uh, we've we got a few here. All right, so let's start with the first one. Um, not a big announcement here. This had already happened a while back, but the deal closed. Uh, and no pun intended here, but deal, D-E-E-L, uh, closed its deal, D-E-A-L, <laughs> with uh, PayGroup, PayAsia. Um, and as you know, uh, PayGroup or PayAsia was uh, a very um, formidable uh, Asia-Pac-based, you know, HR, excuse me, payroll, uh, I would say EOR, multi-country payroll, EOR and uh, and even an HCM technology provider, which has gone off to uh, you know Deal, which is a global EOR uh, solution provider that is obviously has global payroll aspirations, just like many. Um, and so, yeah, really, really build you know building out their um, capability, their regional capability. This this fills a big a big gap in their in their um, uh, offering. Um, and congrats to Mark Samalal and team over at yes. uh, Pay Group and Pay Asia. Indeed. Um, yeah. Yeah. I worked with those guys a bit myself over the years and uh, always thought very highly of them and their team. 
Same uh, I'm really happy to see this. So, uh, yeah, I think yeah, this they is... have a great leadership team. You know what? What struck me yeah. on this, Pete, besides the fact that I know you you uh, yeah. you posted about it actually quite a while ago when it was announced with some good stats on you know the the impacts of the sizes coming together. But what strikes me is you know Ceridian went on a tear and you know bought up Excelity and also yes. Ascender, and so <laughs> yep. that left Pay Group or Pay Asia as one of the you know the the bigger players left in the region. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, now seeing these guys come together the you know, the Asia marketplace has really been kind of, um, uh, spread out and gobbled up. Right. <laughs> yeah, it has. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I've watched a lot of these, these regional players kind of grow up and, and, and mature and, and ultimately do this. And it's on the one hand, it's bittersweet. It's like, I'm really happy for them. They, they find a home to, uh, you know, further their investment and uh, obviously, you know, continue building on what they've done. But at the same time, I just, you know, they have their own little culture and their own sort of identity, you, you know, as you see them, see them grow up, you hate to see that sort of go away, but uh, I'm sure they're going to bring some great, you know, great, great insights to, to deal uh, and, and deal obviously, you know, very well known for putting a lot into their software and their solution, um, you know, is saying by, uh, by, by H1 2023, they will have a merged version of their capabilities and software. So integration is well underway and, and you know, it's going to be interesting to see, um, see if they stop here, right. If, if more, yeah. if more acquisitions are in, yeah. are on the radar, I, I think you're going to see more in the industry for sure. Will they be a deal? You know, not sure, but, uh, yeah. So for that sure. one's well on its way. Hey, so um, I have, I have one, a new right? one. Yep, I got yeah. a new one for you. And, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see what pans out. But um, I noticed that um, Vizier, 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 I, I'm not sure exactly what the proper, um, I, I've heard folks calling it both ways, Vizier and <laughs> HR.com, um, announced a partnership. Yeah. Now, this is one of those where, you know, kind of remains to be seen um, what comes of this. But if you think about it, Vizier is the people analytics, right? Long established as a kind of a leader in that space. And HR.com is more of an online community of HR practitioners. And so, um, so along with this announcement came the idea that together they can bring resources that will help HR practitioners build their personal and organizational analytics skills. So, so it's digging in to see like, what does that mean, right? What, what will HR.com practitioners or people who are using HR.com community get and, you know, besides kind of the obvious webinars and some maybe some starter guides for people analytics or thought leadership content, um, I saw what might be more interesting is direct access through HR.com to Vizier's benchmarks. And um, so just digging a little bit into, you know, what does that mean? What does that look like? I think I saw over 20 million employee records um, and the types of data that are assembled in those benchmarks are career progression and exit and diversity metrics. And um, that's across the last few years and 22 different industries. So, um, Good. you know, yeah, if you're looking for some interesting benchmarks, it might yeah. just be that HR.com and Vizier are finding, you know, kind of a unique delivery model to get some of that out there for HR practitioners. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. And yeah, I think the benchmarking is becoming more standard in many solutions now across the spectrum of HR. So uh, it's good stuff, right? It's, uh, you know, data is HR and payrolls uh, oil or gold. Um, and I think that uh, everyone is is trying to, to tap into that, right? And yeah, that's, yeah. and as we know, right, it's not been that easy. It, there, there's a lot of organizations I've talked to who have, uh, I think we saw it, right? We talked about the um, uh, the data from, from Stacy over at... Um, uh, yeah, sapient Insights. that analytics yeah. was one of the top three with time and payroll that are going to be replaced or want to be replaced uh, by firms. And I think that's some of that is frustration with the solutions not being as intuitive, maybe as, as folks might, um, might have thought, right. I've seen a lot of folks who, who they get into these things and, but they don't know what, you know, how do you do analytics, right? That might be an episode, but, but I think there's a lot of struggle people still have at really actionableizing that data, if that's a word. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. And I think that these solutions are trying to get more, uh, more helpful, you know, bringing partners together to, to give people the power in their data and the benchmarks I think are huge, right? When, you know, there's these mass data pools now um, around the world, many of the vendors in the marketplace are offering um, sort of anonymized benchmarking capabilities now. And that's, um, it's so valuable, right? To be able to look at yourself in context with others and figure out, are you on the road? You know, do, do you have, uh, are you heading the right direction or not? So yeah, right. good stuff. I'm I'm really happy to see that one. Yeah. 
Uh, I have one last one here, and this one obviously hits hits a little close to home. So Alight Solutions announced this week they've acquired Regroup. Uh, I wasn't personally familiar with Regroup, but they are uh, an entity of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, which uh, Alight has purchased that from. Uh, and they are a data-driven absence and leave management solution provider. Um, right. If you, yeah, if you know leaves, you know leaves are. Uh, I'll, I'll just go on record and say they suck. Right? It's it's difficult. Uh, there's <laughs> there used to be not a lot of solutions out there to help you, uh, or even a lot of service providers that would take that work. Um, and uh, yeah, it's complicated, but it's also incredibly important in, when you think about the the wellness picture uh, and fits perfectly into what Alight you know is going for here. So yeah, yeah. Regroup is bringing um, you know a capability that that aligns well with Alight's uh, body of work. Right, it, it, they do tend to sort of target upmarket. Uh, they work with you know half of the nearly half of the Fortune 100 companies across six continents. Uh, and really do uh, offer a wide range of solutions from outsourcing and co-sourcing to SaaS and, and then, of course, clinical uh, guidelines. So uh, yeah. a nice little fold-in for, for light. Yeah. For sure. And for anyone in the absence leave space or feeling those pains, Reed Group is, has been one of the long longest established, yeah. maybe, you know, niche providers or best-of-breed providers in that space. So super well-known, um, you know, in that space. And, um, and, and lots of different ways to tap into them. I'll be most interested to see, you know, Alight has, um, quite a healthy bench of workday clients and, um, the, the pains, um, the, the very real client pains that we hear in the absence and leave space where they touch workday and not just workday, right? Every, every one of the HR, uh, HCM providers, but I'll be most interested to see if maybe Alight can't make some secret sauce out of the pains um, that workday clients feel in um, in uh, dealing with their leave and absence touch points. So. Yeah, I would agree. I, I I don't recall just from my you know I I haven't spent a lot of time in this world, but over my years uh, working around HRO deals and, and and advisory and whatever, I don't know that there's a lot of solutions for leaves, and it's it's it can be sticky, right? It's a complicated process, and uh, uh, it's funny because well, it's not funny, but a lot of times in deals I worked on in, the, in my past, uh, we would have to carve that off because we didn't do that. Uh, in some of my some of my past worlds, so um, yeah, I think that's one of those solutions that are, are is, is everyone needs it, and um, and and yeah, it's nice to see it. It's landing in a home where it kind of fits uh, in line with a broader you know wellness sort of well, sort sure. of focus. So you know, yeah. I'm sure you don't know this, but we have a very specialized group. Um, it's actually part of a sister company to Heron Palmer that uh, that does exclusively leave an absence. Um, uh, awesome. activities, everything from searching for the technology to co-sourced, um, you know, co-source solutions to, uh, even some of the design, you know, the design, um, uh, attributes and updating of, um, leave and absence policies and programs, uh, especially post COVID there, there's just a huge amount of activity going on there. And, um, if, uh, you know, for anyone that is having those issues or is even just looking to understand the landscape, that's an area that, um, that we have some deep, uh, deep expertise in. So, um, yeah, you know, folks can good. always feel free to reach out and I'll make sure to get you connected to somebody who can tell you what's going on and who the players are in that space. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that, that it is a tricky world. And like I said, I, I think it's a little foggy. I, I'm not, I'm, I couldn't name off, uh, too many, uh, providers that actually do this. So yeah, agree. That's great stuff. So good, good to know. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't think you did. <laughs> very cool. Yeah, now our audience does. So very good. Very good. Yeah. Okay. I think that's it for our news. Am I right, Julie? I think we got all, think, that's all I know of. Yep, yeah. That's all awesome. I think I've got on my radar. So let's dive into our topic of the week. Um, and this, again, another personal uh, wanting to learn, um, so to speak, right? Um, we're going to talk sourcing advisors. Um, what the hell are they? What do they do? Why do you need it? Uh, do I not need it? Uh, where do I need them? What are they, you know, how do they help me? That sort of thing. Uh, and I thought who else in the world uh, to talk about that, but, but you, Julie, um, I, I just for, for fun fact, I don't know if you recall this, Julie, but in my past days, uh, in my IBM days, I, I know we worked on deals where I, I was on the vendor side. You were on the, uh, I think TPI at that point. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, and you, yeah, if you've, you've worked on some, you've worked on a lot of deals in this capacity. Am I, am I right? You are right. In fact, I think I, I kind of shamelessly, um, ISG, my former employer, shamelessly would say I've worked on um, really many of the most complex deals in the industry um, across very large, enormous global providers and initiatives. And I just, I this whole area just gets me so excited. I love 
um, I, I love solutioning in this in this area. So yeah, I yeah I do remember we've I know we've been on both sides <laughs> of the fence together. So that that's exactly why I I call you legendary, right? Because you have worked on on so many of these these mega deals, and th- this stuff is hard. I mean, look, I, I I've I, I um I've worked on some big deals myself on the so- other side as a solution architect. Uh, pre-sales, that sort of thing. I've even been a sourcing advisor in my in my Deloitte days, uh, and done some you know platform selections. I've done um, you know certainly outsourcing selections, um, and being on this side now and having a bit more um, uh, time where I'm spending looking at deals and watching what buyers are sort of going through and um, listening to our team. You know, it got me to thinking about just the whole role of sourcing advisors. Right, I I still don't see enough of them being used. I don't see enough deals coming through. Um, personally, I think there's still a lot of firms that are sourcing led procurement led. Um, and I think they feel like, look, we've got this rich, robust sourcing team. Uh, we know how to do this. We can run with it. But I would argue that especially in HR, it's not like buying any other solution or service, right? Um, I've said this, you know, on the podcast before you're not buying staples or reams of paper. You're not buying servers. Um, you're partnering with an organization to hand over, potentially one of the most important processes, some of the many, many of the most important processes in your organization. Um, and you are really going into this arm's length relationship with someone that is supposed to operate on, on your behalf for your people, right? Your, your most valuable asset. So I just think that of all the things you can be buying out there, right? This is where I think you really do need help. So I just want to pause there, Julian, get, get your thoughts on, on, on just that perspective of, companies kind of going at it alone versus companies, yep. you know, going in and getting and, and recognizing that they can get the best sort of uh, experience, if you will, and result by having some sort of help. So what, what are your what are your thoughts just on that, that point of view? Yeah, well, so first of all, just um, thinking about this historically, right? Historically, um, there there wasn't this advisory space, this sourcing advisory space, um, before the days of you know GM starting to outsource its IT space to EDS. I mean, that that really is when we started to see large companies try a different delivery model with some of their back office activities. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned TPI, where was uh, initially was um, was kind of the the godfather of this industry, right? Uh, especially in the IT space, where um, they really started looking at companies that were trying to deliver their back office services differently and decided, you know, like, let's, let's help, let's facilitate this happening. And so for quite a while in the space, it was on, you know, it was very niche and very unique. Um, and I think what's causing folks now, you know, fast forward um, 20, 20 plus years um, forward, and what's causing folks to think about doing it themselves is kind of twofold. Sometimes it's within the functional area. So HR will say, you know, this is complex and I know my business and I'm, I'm going to, you know, start talking to folks in the market. Other times there's a real expectation that an organization's procurement um, lead and, and drive these sorts of processes. So let me start with the procurement one because you did yeah. refer to it. Like, it's not like buying, you know, your supplies, your core business supplies. Yeah, not at all. Pro- procurement can get, um, you know, has a, a really important role in any sourcing process, including the HR ones. Um, and what I like to see procurement doing in these types of um, sourcing exercises is bringing that client-specific intel, those needs, those questionnaires and exhibits that have to be a part of any sourcing exercise because you are company XYZ, right? Um, those, that's, a, that's a very big value add for procurement in these areas. Sometimes the scoring methodologies, some companies have, you know, kind of a standard or a typical scoring methodology that they use um, across their businesses, whether it's paper or whether it's back office supplies. (laughs) And so if you know you need to follow those rigors, great scoring methodology. Same thing can happen with business case or CapEx and funding approvals and requirements. You know, those are value add items. Um, But beyond that, HR buying is, um, it's not a commodity. And so um, you have to solution as you're going through the sourcing process. And that's something that not all organizations or procurement um, is uh, is used to doing or comfortable doing because it really requires functional knowledge. You have to understand yes. 
the function and the different parts of the function and what the alternatives are because you're solutioning as you're buying. You're not just picking off of a menu list, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I see a lot of is, you know, and, and I've been on, I've been in my sourcing advisor days, I've been, you know, in the middle of this, so to speak, is that you get a lot of firms that rush out there and they're, they just want to price, right? Can you just price yeah. this thing? Um, and I think that's super dangerous. Um, I think that's super short-sighted. And I think most of those companies, depending upon what they're actually trying to do, if it's a small point solution, like printing checks or something, I, okay. But if you're talking about actual managed services or talking about transformation, um, I just think that's a rough way to go about it. So what, what do you, how do you, cause I, I know what I see on the vendor side, right? It, it, it oftentimes when you have buyers coming into these engagements without help, without that third party guidance, or at least the experience, real HR buying experience. And many firms are, you know, second and third generation buyers of HRO and HR solutions, modern solutions at this point. But you find a lot of them come into this, like I said, unprepared, so to speak, for what the process is and how to actually navigate it to the best of their advantage. Um, And I think that puts a lot of vendors in a position to have to kind of down throttle, if you will, and back up and, and consult them. Right. And, and, and here at Alight, you know, where I work now, we have a very good uh, professional services organization where we have the ability to actually do that for customers. In fact, I'd say it's a, it's a key differentiator and it's something that we're, we're trying to make a norm as part of our global payroll work uh, particularly, but, but, you know, how do you, how do you get Julie, how do you get these firms to sort of step back and say, this is an investment that you need to make. And, and here's why, you know, look, it's going to lend itself to a better outcome in many, many ways, better experience, but how do you get them to throttle back? Because I think what happens is, or get them to focus on that, because I think you, it, it puts vendors in a position to have to sort of um, play consultant coach uh, sourcing advisor at the same time, trying to sort of obviously help them get to the right, to the right answer. But how do you, how do you convince a company to slow down and say, look, you do need help. Right. And here's where the value can come from that help. And, and, and you don't, you know, you don't need to do this alone. Right. And, and, and gamble with, you know, uh, figuring out as you go, we've already got all the kind of, uh, cheat codes, if you will, over here, so to speak. So what, what what are your thoughts on that part of it? Well, some companies are either mature enough or, um, or stretched thin enough that they know right from the get go, we need help. Right. So those, those aren't the folks that you're talking about right now. Um, other companies, you know, will want to engage with providers right away. And the providers, of course, all want a sole source, right? So they all want to be the guy to position themselves, not only to um, to share their services and capabilities, but also to, you know, try to provide that that guidance or that leadership or navigation. And, and so initially, uh, if a provider thinks that they can, they have a sole source type of a conversation going with a client, you know, they're quite happy to continue and do most anything, right? They can to try, mm-hmm. to, yeah. have that, um, <laughs> to try to help give that guidance themselves. But I will tell you, you know, over the long haul, um, you know, generally providers prefer to see an advisor involved. Yes. And, yes. and for many reasons, like, first of all, you're not trying to navigate all of that, that's that, that, um, that stuff, all the conversation that a client doesn't really want to share entirely with you usually. But if you're serious enough to pay an advisor, um, to help navigate the process and make sure that it goes off, then you're going to be serious enough to stay on track in your timeline. You're going to be serious enough to actually reach a decision. And it also means that you have engagement and buy-in of leadership. You had to get that in order to bring an advisor in, in the first place. And so those are the three, you know, like the three slam dunks that will cause private writers to say, Julie, I'm happy to see you involved in this process because it gives me more um, conviction that this client is a serious client. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it it does signal. I think it does signal and it does show a maturity, right? That says, uh, you know, we we, we understand this is complicated. We're bringing in help. Um, And I'll be honest with you, I'd say it's less than 50% I see actually doing it. And I wish I I wish I could say we, we could see more. Um, you know, and I, and I think I, you pointed out something very important there, um, that I want to get to. And I think, I think you were alluding to relationships, right? And I think that's one of the overlooked, uh, not just the relationships, the methodologies, the, 
um, you know, you've been the, the, the you've been there, done that sort of, you know, uh, you've seen the good and bad and the ugly, right? So you know how to kind of, p- 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 you know, guide people the right way. But w- what I think is important there in those pieces that you're bringing to the table as a sourcing advisor or that they bring to the table is it's not just about them getting you the best price in terms. Certainly that's the goal, but there's so much more that sourcing advisors do and bring, you know, bring an offer for, for, for buyers, right? I mean, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? How, how do you, how do you, do, do you think buyers see that value at first, or do you think it's something that they have to kind of learn? Yeah, I do. You know, you mentioned something interesting about it, not just being the best terms, uh, you know, the best buy terms. And I would tell yeah. you um, it, the work, the heavy lifting that a sourcing advisory does, a sourcing advisor does is earlier on in the process. And in fact, very often when you get to the point where you're, you're starting to talk about contracting in terms and conditions, that's a lighter, that's a very light role where you, yeah. you, you know, those things procurement and legal do all day long. Um, they do need to know the nuances or the specifics of the market. Um, so many providers don't work off of client paper. They work off of, you know, paper that reflects a, a shared model or a SaaS type model. And so you need to know what the market norms are, but that's not where you need the heavy lift of a sourcing advisor. The heavy lift is in, first of all, relationships. Um, you know, you may see these providers from time to time, even if you're in HR and you're an HR leader, you've probably worked with many of them in the past, but a sourcing advisor sees them in the, you know, this sales and transition capacity over and over and over and again, a dozen times or, yep. you know, dozens of times a year. Yeah. And, and that type of insight is not something that you can easily have in-house yourself. Um, so that's a big one. And you mentioned methodologies and templates. I mean, that's obvious. You don't want to start from scratch. You also, you know, are kind of wasting a little bit of time if you're, if you're asking for things in an RFP that are outside of market norm. Um, you really want somebody to tell you, like, that's not normal. You know, that's not a normal part of delivery. Does that mean that maybe your providers won't do that for you, but you should expect that you're driving up cost by asking for X, Y, and Z. And if that's your intent, you know, and you have to have it and you're willing to pay for it, great. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many conversations I've started with, you know, they have to speak, a call center has to speak every language of every one of my employees all along the globe. And I'm like, you can ask for that, but you're going to like, you're not going to be able to afford that. So um, if, if you're in 50 countries, like, yeah. we can get real now or we can get real later. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's go into this with our eyes wide open. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I learned very, very, um, I think very quickly, uh, as I was doing, you know, I, look, I've been on, on all sides of the sourcing life cycle myself. I've, uh, I've, I've selected these solutions. <laughs> I have uh, obviously studied them now, but, but at some point in my career, I had been in pre-sales, I had been in solutioning, but then I was also then at some point on the governance side where I was managing mm-hmm. a contract that was, uh, you know, uh, after it's been negotiated, gone live, here you go, we're running it globally. Right. Um, and I think what I learned from that experience personally is how critical it is that these deals are not lopsided. Yeah. Um, I have seen deals where the vendor had absolutely positively no wins, right? Uh, it just was an imbalanced deal f- financially. Um, it was an imbalanced deal uh, just in every way possible. And it wasn't successful, right? It, it, in some cases, I've seen those things. And so I think that's important to talk, Julie, a little bit about how do you get to a win-win for both buyer and supplier so that it is a mutually um, beneficial arrangement financially and just, you know, otherwise over the course of the deal. Because I think the worst thing you can do is enter into uh, this marriage, right? This seven year, five year, um, thing that is so intimate, right? To your organization, your human capital, right? Your people, it's in it, whether it's payroll or it's anything else, it's going to impact them, uh, directly, right? How do you, how do you balance that so that it isn't lopsided for the buyer or lopsided for the vendor? And then there's this unhappiness and eventually it just falls apart or it doesn't work. Um, how do you, how do you do that as a sourcing advisor, Julie? How do you balance all that? Cause I think yeah. that's a key piece that they do. Right? It, it is Service something, it is something that's pretty key. And part of it is about acknowledging that, yeah, you can't squeeze the blood, you know, the, the lifeblood out of, uh, provider arrangement or you will pay yeah. for it that you know yeah. you either won't get the services or your your services will fail you you want a provider to have a, a reasonable margin you don't want yeah. them to have excessive margin so 
one of the ways that you do that is by working with an advisor who sees over and over again and knows what a healthy margin looks like, right? Yeah. And is yeah. still doing the, you know, they're really still working on your behalf to get you the best deal possible. But it's yes. not always about the dollars, you know, the, the flat dollar amount. Of course, that's, you know, that's where everybody's attention is. But it's also about asking for um, services or delivery models or um, activities that are outside of the norm of a delivery model. And that's an area where folks feel a lot of pain because you try so hard to get the things that, you know, fill your gaps from, from the client perspective, right? Like I just, I have to have them do it this way. And they're telling me they don't normally, but I could push them and they'll be willing to do this. Um, that just creates pain points in their delivery model that that you you know are likely to feel if there's too many of them if they're not in reasonable areas or if they're just likely to fail between the sales messaging and then the delivery arm that actually has to transition stand up and execute that and so yeah. knowing what those are before you you press for those as part of your uh, your managed services arrangement is really important insight that uh, yeah. that any sourcing advisory should you know, should be giving you. Totally. And how much do you get involved in, in helping coach them along the lines of their retained team and the whole governance process? Do you, you, you I mean, I, I know the answer to this mm -hmm. myself, but maybe talk about a little bit about that, because I think that's, that's a hard part that I don't know that, ever, that that's where sometimes good deals can fall apart is in that governance piece, right? Like I've it seen is. that where the people weren't able to execute or the governance model just wasn't good. Um, and they just didn't have the right resources or for whatever reason, the culture just wasn't into it. Um, but talk about that a little bit. What do you, what do you feel about that piece? Um, how do, how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, sure. Let me start by saying, you know, that's not usually what's on folks' mind when they're going yeah. into the sourcing exercise. So a lot yeah, of times right. that's not in an initial <laughs> But it's scope. so important. It's so and important. It, and it is important, but you do end up doubling back to it. So, you know, first of all, I have a fundamental belief that, you know, when you're buying services in HR or technology in HR, ultimately the relationship that needs to be successful is between you and the vendor, right? So, so you don't need or want a consulting firm to just hang around eternally, you know, as kind of a a part of that relationship. You want to have a healthy relationship between the two of you. Um, when that is not contemplated up front, and it usually doesn't even start to get really contemplated by most firms until after implementation, which again, I'm not saying is best is the best way to do that. But um, <laughs> but you do then uh, come back around and recognize whether it's part of renewal, whether it's part of post-transition, you know, stabilization, that you should have had those tenants of healthy governance designed in from the get-go. And the, not only that, but you should have, you know, the ideal situation for transformation is to have folks' implementation roles involved in the rolling out, the design and the rollout of services and have those resources go into roles that that have a role in governance as well, right? So that you get that continuity from the very beginning of requirements through transition and into ongoing governance. And that takes a lot of planning um, that, you know, I mean, let's be honest, that's not usually the way we staff and plan our projects up front. <laughs> and, uh, and so we do get involved quite often in those areas. Um, but it's usually as an afterthought, it's usually if things have gone rocky or it's usually as the folks are thinking about going into renewal. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and actually that's, that's an interesting, uh, thing to talk about as well as renewal, Pete, because, um, it's not like you're, you're sourcing or buying the first time around. That's usually what people think when they think about sourcing advisory. But as you come up on a term or a major change, even if it's before, you know, your, your, your term, your initial term is, is expired. Those are all opportunities for you as a buyer to look at what's new in the marketplace, what's new with your provider and what sort of, of leverage or changes would be healthy to your arrangement and advantageous to you, of course, um, and are reasonable to ask for. And so, you know, and in renewal engagement has as many elements of sourcing as the, a, a, a net new sourcing engagement has and, uh, and includes a lot of strategies about how or when do I ask for these things? How, you know, how should I, how should I mold this relationship so that it's, it remains healthy and, uh, and we're not falling behind. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So look, I think I would be sort of, we would be remiss, Julie, if, if we didn't add the, the one thing that I think is probably, in my opinion, the most valuable, uh, but also maybe the most overlooked as far as sourcing advisors go is that uh, the risk reduction or the risk avoidance element of this, right? I think that's the key benefit that really, in my opinion, this, the sourcing advisors bring to the table is just risk reduction. Um, talk about that a little bit, but what, what do you see as some of the risks? And do, do you agree with that? Do you feel like that's the most important part of what, what you do when you're working with customers? I feel like it's something that you should get table stakes um, from yeah. any good advisor. It's not usually the thing that people come to you, you know, with their with their poke yeah. list and say, "Hey, yeah. I really want you to reduce my risk in this." Yeah, you know, yeah. Like that, but that's, it's key, though, right? It is. It is. And um, and there's so many things that are key um, in the area of risk reduction. I think we've talked about a few where whether it's asking for things that are outside of the norm and the risk that that could present itself, the expectations of the buy, and even um, on your own side, you know, the expectations of, um, of cost and of funding so that you can actually get through approvals and hurdles. Some of the risks that I think are, are most uh, reduced in today's market or the things that you should really try to reduce risk on include, um, you know, kind of the a roadmap for, um, for funding and execution, because some of these larger initiatives are, you know, multi-year or multifaceted, um, uh, things and you actually really need to think about you know when do I need to go live and how long do I need to do all the different parts um, and uh, what about the next phase of of um, of services or modules and uh, being able to think and back things into logical timelines is is not usually something that um, that that uh, comes naturally or quickly um, to folks that are trying to do it themselves yeah or, or yeah don't deal in HR a lot. Um, the other thing is just the transition resources, right? So oh, um, good. if yeah. you think about, you know, the transition and providers that either do it themselves or you go to a systems integrator market and you get a specialist that does transition, their whole perspective is founded on their role to configure and get the product live or the services live, right? So they're, right, they're very right. laser focused on that. And there will be um, placeholders for the client activities, the key client activities. But, but that isn't enough to describe all of the, the, um, the connections and the, the, the underlying work that has to be done by the, uh, the client side resources yeah. in order yep. to have a successful transition or transformation. And so, um, so that sort of planning and de-risking is, is probably one of the biggest areas that we're getting involved in often uh, because today you can't just ask folks to double hat, triple hat, quadruple yeah. hat, you know, it's yeah. not the right they job market. Are. They already are. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so the planning part of it is just, is just really huge. Um, it's a huge element for success. It's almost, it's almost an element much like change management, right. That, that can be ignored at your own peril. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and J Julie, do, do you, do you think that, so I've, I've really only worked with, or I'm thinking about my times as a sourcing advisor and times I've worked on deals. I've generally only worked with firms who from the, from the get go, right. They, they had a sourcing advisor or they had some sort of help. What, what if you get mid project, mid, midway through your sourcing, midway through whatever you're doing and you realize we're in over our head, we need help. Is, can a sourcing advisor kind of step in and help at that point or is it just too late? No, um, is there you, a salvage, you know, job you can do at that point, right? Oh, you definitely can. So, yeah. um, you know, I've been involved in multiple client engagements where, you know, there was failure. Um, and so, you know, you're having conversations after two or three failed attempts. You know, sometimes I'm working with one client that has had four failed attempts in, in prior uh, goes at this. And so that's possible. I would even tell you, you know, I, I talked to many, uh, many companies that start down um, just the RFP path or the RFI path themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they get so far and they engage providers. Now they have providers calling them, you know, three times a week, right? So you yeah. create a little bit of your own noise and, yeah. and nightmare, but they like get so blood in the water. <laughs> they get so far along and they're like, okay, we can do this. And then they get stuff back and it's like yeah. apple fruit and buses, right? I mean, yeah. it's not apples to apples. And, <laughs> and so they're like, oh my, I'm not even sure I know how to do justice to yeah. compare these things. And are, like, they don't look right. Are they truthful? And so, um, so oftentimes we'll get engaged, you know, even 
even after her client started that. And the, and the, you know, the approach there is let's work with what you have, but we're probably going to have some gaps you need to close or maybe have that market knowledge and proficiency to be able to, you know, just help you put a bow on it and make sure that you're looking at it right. Yeah. Um, So that absolutely happens. Um, It's not ideal, but it does happen. Yeah. Awesome. So let me ask you this. How, uh, how do you, how would you recommend somebody go about selecting a sourcing advisor? Like how do you qualify and figure out what is the, right. You know, when you're buying solutions for your business, right. You're, you're looking at use cases and all those sorts of things. You're fitting it to the, to the needs of your culture and your, you know, your organization's processes. But what do you do in this case when you're, you know, is this all about relationships? I mean, how do you select an advisor in this case? Yeah, it can be. It definitely is. There's an element of relationships to even know who plays in the space or who is good at this. And I would tell you that there are a lot of folks, you know, that that are happy to do some advising. The, The very number one thing that I tell HR buyers or organizations is, look at the downstream interests for starters, because many folks who are happy to advise are happy to advise because they want to be the one to do X, Y, or Z, right? So so they have a direct incentive and, and that doesn't mean that they can't advise. It just means, you know, they might not be the most neutral or unbiased play. They might not really, you know, they might have an element that keeps them from working solely on your behalf as as part of that. So, so that's really big. Um, And then I would say, you know, you really do need to, uh, some folks will do a full RFP to select a sourcing yep. advisor. Yep. All I can say there is just make sure, you know, like if you're going to spend six months selecting an, uh, an advisor, you know, you probably are going to, you know, like think about leaving not just two months to select your software. Or select your, yeah. You know, a lot of times they'll spend so much time up front and then the, then the sourcing advisor, they tell them you got to get this done in three months. I'm like, what? Yes. You've been dealing yeah. with me for eight months. How I you know. want this done in three? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that was one of the hardest things about my time as a sourcing advisor. I remember we had a few clients, big clients I work with that uh, had one that wanted to um, do a hybrid RFI, RFP, uh, somewhere in between that, I guess you could say. It was almost like an RFI with pricing, I think, um, and demos, by the way, which I, I, I really tried to encourage them not to do this. Um, and they had a reputation. They were a do-nothing buyer. Uh, they had a reputation for kind of doing this every three or four years. Um, and I really tried to take them in a different direction, but it was very difficult. They were mm-hmm. just so, you know, it was almost kind of a waste having us in some ways because I feel like they kind of didn't listen to us well in some, some regards. Mm-hmm. Um, it worked out in the end. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, we, we've talked about this before about, build, you know, getting a reputation, right? Sometimes, uh, as organizations, if you are kind of out there doing, you know, this sort of wishy-washy, you know, RFI one day, RFP the next, you know, and, and every other year you're doing this and you're, and you're not, you're not actually going forward with anything. People are going to kind of not take you serious. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be hard to get, you know, firms to work with you. So I think, I think when and where you can bring sourcing advisors in, I, I personally have seen a lot of great, uh, great experiences from that. Um, and yeah. firms do, do much, much better, uh, in my opinion, just from what I've seen. Yeah, I think um, a good process lets lets the advisor yeah. not only respond to what you're asking for, but also says what yeah. else, what other value adds should we be thinking about? And yeah. a, a good a good process will consider um, you know some of the things you're bound to hear some new things. I would also tell you, you know, there are sourcing advisors and there are HR advisors that do more than sourcing, right? So yes, they yes. won't just execute the RFP. They they can do strategies. They can bring benchmarks. They can do you know other pieces of the uh, of the HR transformation advisory, and that's really valuable because then you get somebody who says. Uh, I, I answered an RFP once um, about two years back. They wanted a sourcing advisor for their HCM and they knew they were going to go to the cloud. They knew they needed to buy that. They knew they needed to buy the SI and they said, what else? And so, you know, we responded and said, you know, well, you really should be looking at optimizing and harmonizing your processes and you should be looking at your operating models so that you're clear on the operating model that you're moving to. That's what you're going to configure. And, um, you know, many clients don't have the appetite or the timeline or the resources for that. Um, But when you do, you know, that is there's just as much work outside of the sourcing exercise itself to be done in preparing the organization. you know, for its operating model of the future. And, uh, I think a lot of folks miss that. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's work. That's a good, that's a good word to use. It's work. It's hard. And, um, this is a, a bit of a puzzle, right? And it, when you know how to navigate that puzzle, uh, from past experience, what, what better, you know, what, what better way to go about it than trying to sort of guess, right? If mm -hmm. you have someone who can give you the cheat codes, if you will, <laughs> yeah. I guess it would be uh, very beneficial. So, you know, let's talk now, magnitude too. You know, yeah. when you're thinking about, geez, you know, let me just do it myself because an advisor is going to cost, you know, yeah. some, some money. Well, and the advisory role is kind of a one-time discrete amount of effort, right? And, yep. and yep. usually the services or the software that you're buying is easily 10x plus, yes. right? So, yeah. so while there's a discrete cost to it, you know, it's not an unmanageable cost, you know, and it can be scoped in a number of different ways, depending on your team resources and, you know, to go into, um, a large million multi-million dollar buy yeah. with some sort of a guide um, that that cost is, um, you know, really quite small compared to the it funding is. ask that you're going to have to be prepared to get approval for. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think, I think when you put it in that context, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think a lot of organizations do think, oh, we, you know, we've bought stuff before we can do this again. I think it goes back to those probably procurement led firms that are, that are very, you know, we've got these very uh, skilled, uh, savvy pr procurement folks, but again, it's just not buying the same thing. Uh, right. as you might buy, you know, something else. So, so I, right. I think we've probably hit on everything we wanted to right. Julie, anything else here? I, I have something kind of, uh, kind of lighthearted. I want to talk to you about really quick before we wrap up, if not, but yeah. anything well, that you think we didn't touch on here? Let me just throw out one thing. Someone who is yeah. one last thing, anyone who does this for a living, like who, so yeah. who plays a role like this for a living is happy to have conversation with you, whether that leads to an engagement yes. or not. Right. So, so this is a world that we live in, that we play in, you know, um, you as an analyst have been, you know, in other sides of the thing now at a light, you know, in a different role. So there are different roles in this whole process, yeah. but it is this, you know, it is kind of the, the center of our career and professional insights and knowledge. And so you don't have to, you know, be determined to hire somebody. You can think you're actually not going to hire someone and still reach out and have a really great conversation with somebody who does this all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, and you'll learn from it and, yeah. um, and they'll learn from you as well. And, uh, you know, if you need some help, then generally they'll be happy to help. And if you don't, you know, that that's okay. This is still yeah. a part of their expertise and sharing in our industry that, uh, you ought to be able to get some good conversation and some good insights. Yeah, absolutely. You know, get in touch, right. And, and ask those questions and, and qualify that and see if, you know, uh, if you are truly able to handle it or not and, and where you can, uh, you know, get some help because, uh, yeah, I, I've just personally, you know, I've, I've not done research on this, but anecdotally, I, I just see a better outcome, uh, and a better process and experience for the buyer and the, and the vendor when this is in place uh, and they have help. Um, and they have some sort of a framework and path and, and they do have guidance, someone, someone giving them those sort of, again, cheat codes along the way to help them, you know, not bump their heads. So it's all about um, finding something actionable, right. And not, getting, yeah. you know, trying to stay out of the do nothing box as often yeah. as, as, as uh, much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Refer back to episode one, if you, <laughs> for that, but yeah, I, I hate, I hate to see buyers go through that because, you know, it's yeah. a lot of cost and work for everybody, even the vendors, right. Um, yeah. I mean, we all know of, of companies who go out to market every so many years and they do the same thing and, and it becomes like, oh, here we go again. Um, and, and you don't want that, right? You don't want that no. reputation. You really do want to be out there doing things purposefully. I, I've always had this theory, Julie, that if you could, if we could, if vendors could charge for the, for the, for the buying process, it would be an entirely different buying process. It would be much yeah. faster. I think, yeah. uh, you'd have a lot less, you'd, a lot more serious buyers kind of coming out there with more serious efforts than kind of saying, Oh, just give me a price. And, you know, and that's one of the worst things I think you can do, by the way. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you could give me your opinion on this too, Julie. I, I really always kind of cringe when buyers go out and just ask for a price. Yeah. Um, that's a really dangerous thing. Not dangerous. It's just a really short-sighted thing to do. And you're probably, you're probably eliminating very good vendor relationships and solutions by just doing it on the surface like that and looking at the price. Because really, until they get in there and work with you a little bit, it's very difficult to give you a very specific price uh, and a very specific solution, so especially in complex orgs. So don't yeah. go out there and just get a price, right? You use a searching yeah. advisor for that instead to get yeah. a ballpark yeah. or some benchmarks. And, you know, uh, what will happen is you'll just, you'll just find that a, a strong vendor will then scope to the price that they've strapped themselves with. Right. Yeah. So, 
um, the idea is to get in the door and to qualify yourself. And so those early pricings are not super, um, are not super actionable. Uh, and they do, they can drive behaviors that, you know, ultimately you, you, you might regret. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, Julie, you said you had something fun yeah. and lighthearted. Let's hear it. Yeah. A little lighthearted or finish out here. So this has been great. You know, look, reach out to us if you have any more questions. I, I think we probably could, I, I could go on and ask you more, um, but, right. but I know we got to get, got to get to it and everybody wants to probably, um, uh, you know, get to their holidays. Hopefully by the time this comes out, everyone will be on their holiday trips. But uh, yeah. So look, I wanted to ask you about the concept. So, so we've both been through tons of contract redlining, right? And, and I know I, I've spent those late hours kind of redlining my pieces and parts that I had to in my world. Uh, and I remember one contract we worked on, and I think I have a small screen capture of this, of the verbiage. I, I'll tweet it if I can find it. But I worked on a contract in 20, I want to say it was 2012-ish. Uh, Fortune 100, big organization was doing a, a full-scale HRO deal or wanted to back then when people were still doing those. <laughs> and uh, they had a force majeure clause. Now, if you don't know what force majeure is, I know you do, Julie, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's essentially, I, th I think it's a Latin phrase, a, a legal term for basically saying under this clause, if, 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 if some disaster beyond man's control happens, uh, all bets are off in this contract. Is that a, is that a fair definition? Yeah. I don't know if it's all bets are off, but it does say you know, <laughs> some outs, right? There, it, it, yeah, it, yeah. There's some uh, language that allows you to make sure that you can have continuity. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. All bets, yeah. All bets okay. are off. Okay. <laughs> so, sort of. Right. So, okay. And I'm not a lawyer, so huge disclaimer, not an attorney. So, okay. So this customer came across, I've never seen this again. And I'm, I'm asking if you've ever seen this, we, they had a force majeure clause that specifically called out the event of an, a zombie apocalypse and <laughs> they required vendors to agree to it. And I first thought it was one of those things. I thought it was a joke. We all thought it was a joke. Uh, I thought it was one of those things like you hear, uh, uh, rock stars have writers, right? And there are some rock stars, uh, for example, Van Halen, I read one time actually did the whole, like no yellow M&Ms or whatever it was, green M&Ms or something like that. Uh, and the point of them doing it was because they had a very specific lighting set on their, on their production that if not properly put together, right, it could be dangerous, but it could also not perform the, you know, whatever experience they wanted for their audience. So they had these clauses in there as gotchas to see if people were actually reading the writers to make sure that the details of their, of their other things were correct. It wasn't about being divas, apparently. So we'll, we'll, we'll assume. So do you think that something like that is, was a, let's see if they're really reading our contract? Or do you think that was some, or do you see this? Like, have you seen the zombie apocalypse in force majeure clauses or have you seen something <laughs> crazier? <laughs> no, no zombie apocalypse. And, you know, I don't know. You, <laughs> like, you're just going to be sorely disappointed if you're tossing something like that into this, into a big paperwork process, yeah, hoping yeah. somebody catches it. I don't know. It feels like the juice not worth the squeeze to me. I know. Um, That's the only thing I could think of. I was like, they can't be serious, right? Like that. But but they made. And you know what? If it stays in agree. there, no harm, no foul, right? I don't know. In case like, it happens. So yeah. on either case, on either <laughs> side, if it got put in there in the first place as a gotcha, I mean, so leave it in there because somebody's going to read it and think, oh, this client like has some kind of a like there's something wrong with them. But I don't think I have to worry about this, right? And so, I know. yeah, I, know. I don't know. It's it's. I poor, thought it was. Uh, <laughs> it's a poor yeah. trap. <laughs> I thought it was a test. Yeah, but who knows? Anyway. <laughs> So you've not seen a zombie apocalypse in I've your contract work. I've not seen a zombie apocalypse in the contract. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I don't have any insurance personally for a zombie apocalypse either. So okay. I guess I'm well, not that worried about it. All right. I think we'll be all right. I, I don't suppose they're coming for us anytime uh, we soon. We should have so. done this before Halloween, see? <laughs> before, yeah. before the year-end Christmas, I know, you know, know. year-end holidays. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, this has been a great episode uh, and we'll be back uh, very soon. So thank Thanks. you so much. Enjoy the holidays, Pete and everyone yeah. else. I hope you, you too. I wish for the best and we'll see you in the new year. Yep. Happy holidays, everyone. Mm -hmm.